0: Hey guys and gals, you're listening to the Pandemic Podcast hosted by Dr. Stephen and Mark Kissler and myself, Matt Botker, where we equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. Hey guys, hi Matt. Oh, is a delay there? Hey, how's it going? So, uh, you probably want to know who's a, who we who we have here. So, our first ever uh, podcast. Uh, so, I'm kind of gonna do a quick round of introductions. So, I'm going to start with uh, Stephen. Why don't you do a quick couple minute introduction of who you are and maybe why you're even here?
1: Great, yeah, so um, hi everyone, I'm Steven um, and I'm currently working at the Harvard School of Public Health uh, in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. Uh, I'm a postdoctoral fellow there, which uh, basically means that I spend all of my time doing research and my research interests are mainly in infectious diseases. Um, I've been working on infectious diseases for the last six or seven years um, through the end of my undergrad and during my PhD, which I did in applied mathematics at the University of Cambridge. So throughout um, my time studying, I've basically been trying to merge the study of mathematics and numbers and um, statistics uh, with the study of infectious disease. So really trying to marry this order and chaos, really, uh, if you will. Um, and I think that there's, uh, there are a lot of really interesting topics to think about here. And with respect to the outbreak that's going on right now, um, I've been following it really since, since it got started. So, um, so that's what brought me here. And I'd love to share some of the information that I've learned over my time, uh, with everyone who's listening.
0: That's awesome. And then, uh, Mark was telling you, I'll get to you a second, Mark, but you were mentioning like, uh, Mark was saying you are a what, cause I, this is, this is my ignorance that I can't even say the word.
1: An epidemiologist.
0: Yes, whatever that is, that's what he is. So um, I I don't want to butcher it. I'll I'll look even more ignorant than I really am. Uh, Mark, hey, uh, as you may know, uh, these are brothers, so they come from a pretty good uh, uh, line of genes. Uh, So, uh, Mark, why don't you introduce yourself quickly?
2: Sure, yeah. Um, So I'm a physician. Um, I'm boarded in internal medicine and pediatrics. I practice in Aurora with University of Colorado Hospital right now as a hospitalist. And, yeah, I appreciate the invitation. You know, my hope is to just kind of provide a little bit of a sense of both as a physician, um, kind of what we're seeing, and then also, you know, as a husband and father and, you know, son-in-law and son and all these things that I'm hearing from the community. uh, I think this is a great forum to just kind of chat and talk about what's going on Um, and just uh, for the sake of you know completeness definitely all the information here um, that I'm going to talk about is not intended as a substitute for appropriate medical evaluation or mm -hmm. diagnosis or treatment Um, so definitely encourage you all you know all who's listening to check in with your doctor primary care provider if you have any concerns
0: awesome yeah Good, good point. I wouldn't even have thought about that. Um, and about me, besides uh, I'm just the talking head here, clearly, uh, my my background has no relation to this podcast at this moment, but a little bit. I'll tell you a bit. Um, I have a bachelor's in computer science back in 2001 in the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and they got an MA in biblical studies in 2006, which is complete, completely unrelated to computer science. I currently uh, serve as the camp in campus ministry in Boulder, Colorado. But I also have like a little side business where I help businesses, small businesses, leverage technology, develop processes to scale and transform culture into something life giving, providing longevity back to their business. I'm also a lapsed blogger, and don't worry, this actually has a connection, I promise. Uh, I, I'm also a lapsed blogger and podcaster where I use the platform to explore like um, how we can live, labor, leisure, and a love, and a pursuit of a more real life, which is where my expertise comes in, I think, in this particular discussion of how do we actually keep a real perspective when faced with fear? I think this is, whether it's coronavirus or <laughs> anything, um, just we live in a particular day and age where there seems to be a lot more fear. How can we stay grounded in fear? Um, I'm married to a beautiful and profoundly curious wife uh, with three incredibly wild and crazy boys who destroy our house often, five, four, and two years of age. Uh, and I intentionally used the word uh, curiosity for my wife for a particular reason, because I want to kind of set the stage for this is why, uh, why uh, we decided to come here and create a pandemic podcast. And the biggest reason why is back in late December, early January, my wife got news of the coronavirus when it was still like really early stages in, in China. And she was really getting nervous about this. And so uh, first she started looking, you know, reading the, the news and and hearing all the stuff was going on. And, and it was hard to separate what was fact, what was fiction. And we got to the point where we decided the best thing was for me to just kind of Kind of look at the news and then provide it for her, and uh, it was really difficult because my wife had all the time, profoundly, very good questions that I had no way to answer. And I would spend hours trying to find them. And I had to like, like just take all these disparate pieces of information and then put them together in, in my own fashion. And I'm like, this is just too much. And finally, like three days ago, uh, I saw Steven's uh, Facebook. It was like a week ago, Facebook. I'm like, oh my gosh, Steven, he's got the answers. So I called him and uh, riffed with him for a little bit. I'm like, oh my gosh, this needs to be in a more concentrated environment. So this is our goal is to help Help provide information to you that it can help you separate what's real, what's not, and hopefully ground the situation. so you have more hope and live a more real life and know what's fact and what's fiction? So, in light of that, let's let's get into our sega right now. I'm going to start with Stephen, and can you set the stage of what, like, as of today, with what's March March 5th, uh, Thursday? Where are we at with the coronavirus in the U.S.?
1: Yeah. So, over the past couple of weeks, we've seen increase in the number of cases of coronavirus in the United States. Um, and I think that, uh, it, well, as it stands today, uh, we have on the order of 100 confirmed cases. So those are people who have been um, tested or presumed positive for the virus. Um, and the last I checked, there were there have been 11 deaths so far. Um, so it's certainly something that, um, that has caught our attention. Um, over the past couple of weeks, one of the biggest developments in this country is that um, rather than having exclusively cases that have been imported from abroad, We've seen evidence of person-to-person transmission within the United States. And so that has really changed um, the sort of the strategy and the narrative about um, containing this outbreak. Because my, now we know that it's beginning to spread in certain localized communities. Um, and so now we need to know what to do to um, to ideally prevent it from spreading too far from there. Um, Great.
0: And, uh, you know, a follow-up question with that is, okay, so you're, we're looking at in the United States, you said 100 confirmed cases, right?
1: As far as I'm aware, yeah,
0: yeah, but roughly that. And you said 11 deaths, right? So this seems disproportionately huge as a rate uh, of of death. Can you speak into this briefly? Of, like, is it just uh, are we seeing a, a higher, uh, a worse virus, or is there something else involved possibly here?
1: Yeah, so there are um, there are a number of uh, issues involved with with sort of just taking the number of cases or the number of deaths and dividing it by the number of cases and saying that we have a case fatality rate there. Um, and as I'm speaking, these things sort of similar to what Mark said. I, I should say that everything that I'm going to say reflects my own opinions and values and these sorts of things, not necessarily those of the institutions I'm affiliated with. But um, when we're thinking as as epidemiologists about sort of these numbers that are happening, um, the, the first thing to bear in mind is that uh, the number of confirmed cases that we are seeing um, is probably only a small proportion of the number of cases that there are actually out there. Mm. As far as we can tell, the coronavirus seems to, in most cases, cause um, mild upper respiratory illness
0: mm.
1: and in some cases does cause much more severe illness. Um, and we're just not really sure what that what that number is that we're dividing by at the moment. And our best guess is just the number of of tests that we've run. Um, but so far, uh, the number of tests that we've been able to run have been fairly limited just because the technology hasn't been fa- very far widespread yet. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just a lot of uncertainty still about it. So uh, there's a good chance that um, that the the virus is there, there there's reason to believe that the virus is actually less less fatal and less severe than than it seems. So something worth taking seriously, but, um, those numbers can be a little bit
0: misleading. Okay, and then, and then, it, um, You know, I've seen. Oh, Go ahead, uh,
2: oh, yeah, ahead man.
0: No, go ahead, Mark. You're
2: good. I, um, <clears throat> I was just wondering. I've seen a couple different statistics comparing this coronavirus to some of the other flu pandemics that we've seen in terms of, um, you know, mortality or you know, case fatality rates. Can you speak a little bit to what you're seeing with that?
1: Yeah. So, um. As far as we can tell, um, really the sort of the big bad pandemic that everybody goes back to is the 1918 flu pandemic. So we just passed 100 years um, from when that happened. Um, and that uh, that really was was an awful pandemic for, for a number of reasons. Um, one of which was just the timing of it that it, it followed right on the heels of World War One. So we had um, you know young people returning from fighting in the war, and then they were coming back, and many of them were becoming ill with this with this virus. Um, the case fatality rate um, for that one uh, seems to be higher than 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 what we're estimating for this coronavirus. And again, since we're so far removed from that initial pandemic, we have much better estimates of what that was. So maybe an easier thing to compare it to is the 2009 flu pandemic, which much many of us are familiar with, um, yeah. you might know it by the swine flu outbreak. Yeah. Um, that one had, uh, as far as we know, a very a very low case fatality rate. It really didn't seem to be much more severe than the seasonal flu. But At the beginning of the outbreak, we didn't realize that. There was really a lot of uncertainty, again, about this case fatality rate. And amongst epidemiologists, people were really concerned about, you know, is is this going to be like 1918 or is it just going to be a bad seasonal flu? And so um, from my perspective, this coronavirus outbreak seems to be somewhere in between. Um, It seems to be something... Uh, that's probably a little bit worse, maybe a little bit more severe than, than a seasonal flu outbreak for sure. Um, how much more severe is still a little bit unclear, but it does also doesn't seem like it's going to unravel and be something quite like that sort of catastrophic 1918 pandemic that we saw long ago.
0: And then when you're going to what we don't know, I see this a lot in the news, like what we don't know, it's fearful. Um, what, it, what What's being referred to? Is that, is that what it's being referred to is simply that we don't know exactly where it's going to land with the rate of, of uh, the mortality rate, right? Now is that the is that the exclusive thing by that question that they're concerned about
1: yeah so there are a couple of I think um, I can probably distill this into a couple of key questions that we're still trying to answer so one of them is is that um, mortality rate which carries along with it the, really just how many people are actually getting infected with this thing mm-hmm. um, and so uh, that's really the primary question that people are interested in learning is 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 is, is how widely is this thing spreading um, and what does that mean for its severity? Mm-hmm. The second key um, unknown here, and sort of the, one of the real mysteries that we've been thinking about for a while, is the role of um, different age groups in spreading the disease. So we know that the uh, the coronavirus illness um, seems to be more severe as people get older. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the remarkable things from the early reports about the coronavirus is it seemed that almost no children were being reported, um, as being ill. So either that meant that children aren't getting infected or that meant that they weren't getting severe enough illness for it to be picked up by the surveillance system. And that's a really important thing to know too, because if children aren't getting infected, then, um, then closing schools, for example, as we saw in Italy today, they decided to shut down schools and universities for two weeks to try to stem the spread of the outbreak. If kids aren't really responsible for spreading the outbreak, then that's not really going to do much. But on the other hand, if they're responsible for transmitting disease, then then, then then actually that might be a very effective strategy towards at least flattening out this peak of illness. Mm-hmm. Um so those are the two key unknowns as far as I know is really how many people are getting infected and what's that age distribution, because that really affects how we'll respond. Okay.
2: Yeah, you know that's um I think you're pointing to another really important point, which is when we think about the transmissibility of a lot of these diseases, and correct me, you know, Stephen, based on this understanding there's a component that's intrinsic to the disease, right? There's a certain amount that each virus has a degree of transmissibility, you know, is higher or lower than other viruses, but there are also other modifiable things that go into that calculation. Uh, like for instance, you know, schools being open or closed that sort of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and kind of your modeling, uh, which you see? Yeah,
1: that's absolutely correct. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the way that we think about transmissibility as epidemiologists is a number you've probably heard tossed around. It's the basic reproduction number, or the R-naught. Mm-hmm. Um, intuitively, basically, that's, that number is the number of people that an infected person is expected to go on to infect. So for an outbreak to happen, that number has to be greater than one. If it was less than one, then the outbreak would just sort of fizzle out. Mm-hmm. So for a normal seasonal flu, um, usually that number is on the order of one and a half to two seems like for this coronavirus, it's on the order of two to three, maybe. So um, so certainly fairly transmissible. But as Mark said, um, those numbers that I'm pulling out have to do to some extent with the virus, but also to a very large extent with human behavior. Um, you're not going to infect anyone, of course, if you don't actually interact with anyone. And so that brings that number down substantially. And that's, that's what's behind these social distancing measures is basically to try to bring that number um, down a little bit so that it prevents the total number of people getting infected and how quickly they get infected. Mm.
0: Which then, then, can you maybe talk a little bit more, Stephen, about then how it's actually transmitted? Like what are the what are the most common ways it's, 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 it''s given to another person
1: yeah, and and I imagine Mark can probably weigh in on this too. But um as far as we can tell, um it seems like uh, it, it's a respiratory illness like many others. So there are actually um, a, a couple of other types of coronaviruses that commonly circulate among humans and normally just cause the common cold. Um, and so this one seems to transmit in the same way as those viruses and like flu. So um, it's spread through respiratory droplets and can also probably persist on surfaces for some amount of time. Um, And so um, certainly by coughing and sneezing and by touching surfaces that have been coughed on or sneezed on um, are sort of the key ways that it seems like you can pick up this virus. Okay.
2: Yeah, yeah. Coronavirus is a whole class of viruses, and you know the, the name Corona comes from um, the crown-like appearance of some of the viral, uh, the way that it looks when you look at it under an electron microscope. Um, and typically, like like Susan was saying, it causes a mild upper respiratory illness. But we've seen a few of these global spread, you know, rapidly spreading novel coronaviruses in the last few years. SARS being uh, one of the ones that we remember, you know, kind of most recently, as well um and also to that point of uh transmissibility on surfaces so absolutely you know you think about respiratory droplets and kind of direct contact some surface um, however we we don't think that it lasts very long on surfaces and so there have been some questions about you know is it safe to receive packages from yeah. other countries or countries where the the um uh, epidemic has reached higher proportions and the, the current information from the cdc is that yes in fact that is safe we don't think that the virus is stable enough to persist on packaging um that you know that's uh you know over a course of days to weeks uh, in transit so i would agree with that
0: yes and can either one of you speak into? And this is where this is where my wife's been. Her curiosity has been so well for me to understand. But clearly, it's not just surfaces, right? It's like the level of surfaces, um, like whether it's a box or it's on stainless steel, that kind of stuff. So, like, um, when we look at the coronavirus, like generally, uh, Stephen or Mark, how long have we see it lasting on, on on surfaces? And then, in light of that, what measures ought we should? take um in light of i mean clearly packaging from china it takes a few days to get here um whether other things that that may be uh, put us in proximity of potentially getting, catching the virus
1: yeah um so i can speak to that to a little bit I, someone else asked me a very similar question and um there's an entire article that's that's devoted to um, measuring the survival time of viruses on different types of porous and non-porous surfaces in different types of humidity and these sorts of things. It's really amazing what people have <laughs> devoted their time to study, and it's, uh, it's. I think it's a real testament to just how much people care about these real details that really come to matter in times like this. But mm-hmm. um, basically, the the takeaway from that was that it seemed like across the the range of viruses that they studied. Some did better on um, non-porous surfaces like stainless steel. Some did better, as in survived longer, on more porous surfaces like clothing and that sort of thing. But really, the upper limit seemed to be about 24 hours that any of them could survive. And that, that was sort of the upper limit. Um, and also, as Mark said, um, many viruses, and this one in particular, are are, are pretty unstable to um, All sorts of perturbations. So being outside in UV light often neutralizes them pretty easily. Um, Being dried out. um, So if basically just, yeah, if they just get dried out, then that affects them. Um, And this goes back to sort of the basic public health messaging is that just like washing your hands and even using some amount of hand sanitizer um, seems to be really effective against just sort of washing these things away. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really one of our best defenses against them, it seems to be.
0: Great, great. So then you're saying my kids going to the playground maybe is not that terrible of a situation. UV light, it's, uh, outside or is that maybe something maybe I should be, be a little cautious with?
1: Yeah. You know, I think, um, as it stands, it seems like they'd probably be okay. If they were out on a playground, they'd be far more likely to, you know, if someone were infected that they were playing with, then they'd probably just, you know, get it from them, but not that's from true. the surface, yeah. you know. But I doubt that it would be able to survive for very long on on the play structure itself. And, you know, as, as always, just have them wash their hands when they
2: come in the door. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah I think, again, that's exactly. It is kind of emphasizing that some of these normal things, you know, going out to a playground, doing your normal routine are actually really good and healthy. And, you know, we're worried about this virus in particular. But of course, there's a lot of other reasons to Mm -hmm. get your kids outside and play and not, you know, totally upend your daily routine um, because of this really intense news cycle that we've got going about the virus. Um, And so just kind of trying, you know, to... To get a a little bit of a sense of, like, relative risk, you know, is still low and and that these sorts of activities are really good and important.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what do you think we can expect in the coming week?
1: Well, I think it's it's again really hard to say. Um, I think one thing we can expect for sure is more cases in the United States. Sure. Um, and I think one of the important things to emphasize there is that that's both because there are more people getting infected, but that's also just because we're looking harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we're going to see more tests because you know we're going to see more tests positive because we're just going to start running more tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's not to say that the outbreak isn't spreading, and that you know we shouldn't be mindful of you know. Um, Again, washing our hands and just sort of taking care of um, these sorts of basic public health measures. And, but on the other hand, um, sort of trying to, uh, just trying to modulate our alarm and our fear with respect to these things by sort of recognizing okay. that we're just sort of looking harder for this thing. So, sure. um, so inevitably, we're going to start seeing more cases in the coming weeks for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. How should we, you know, kind of getting close to maybe the end at this point, uh, talking about maybe preparations. I'm hearing, like, all this stuff on the news. I just heard my wife talking about a friend who read an article that they need to, like, uh, buy a bunch of water and put it in their house. Uh, and, you know, what's the realistic perspective at this point in time? And, and, and basically, I think the biggest question I have is, like, why? So I think some people think... Um, we need to buy all this food because we're going to run out of food. And I feel like you know, my, my sense is that that is kind of maybe like on the order of fake news, uh, and, and maybe just speak into what's a good, healthy way to prepare that feels, um, uh, it prepares us, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, doesn't put us at, at greater risk, uh, in a more, uh, social, greater social scale.
1: Yeah. So, um, from my perspective, I think that, um, Certainly, going out and you know having you know probably enough food in your home to sustain you for you know a solid week or two without going out is a good idea. But really, that's mostly because if if you become sick, you want to prevent spreading the illness to everyone else. And you know the illness will probably run its course in the majority of cases in in a week or two. And so then you'll be able to sort of you know isolate yourself and prevent yourself from infecting other people. Um, and so I think that to that extent, then. Um, you know, going out and getting food if you if you don't have enough food to sustain yourself for that long is is probably a good idea. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I I don't. I, you know, it's it's really hard to make projections, but I really don't anticipate <laughs> this really shutting down society as a whole. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, I think that. Uh, it, the, humans sort just such a remarkable degree of resilience, and there's there's this initial phase of of panic that I think we go through, um, really anytime any sort of uh, sort of emerging crisis seems to face us, and then, um, but we see this in so many situations that both individuals and societies as a whole just sort of find a way to carry on, and you know there 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 will be food on the shelves, mm-hmm. um, as I, I I certainly think so, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that really our best defense here is is to find ways to to avoid that panic because that, that helps sort of think more rationally and really just lead more full and fulfilled and healthy lives
0: on the whole. Yeah. Mark, what are you doing? Prepare. Yeah. So I think,
2: you know, there's, I, I approach it kind of from two ways from both this, you know, personal way and and sort of a more professional way. So personally we've been gathering some information uh, and getting a little bit of a sense of uh, you know, uh, what are the facts? What do we what do we know, and what do we need to really think about? Uh, hand washing has been huge. You know, my kids are still still of the age where sticking their fingers in your eye is you know they consider a socially acceptable greeting. And so we're like <laughs> totally. really like really encouraging them to wash their hands after school and that sort of thing. Uh, but also as a parent, you know, trying to normalize and and make sure. in you know, My five year old, or sorry, sorry, six year old now uh, had a lot of questions um, of me recently about what's going on. Cause she started to hear about it in her kindergarten classroom. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, as we talked earlier with the playgrounds and that sort of thing is, um, just kind of being attentive to, you know, to these excellent questions, giving them good responses, um, but also not trying to kind of whip up more fear and anxiety than, than needs to be there, um, for them. So that's kind of on the personal side. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, if that kind of answers your question on the on the professional side, you know we've done a lot uh, within the hospital system in which I work for preparedness, um, and so talking about the types of measures we put into place, if for instance someone were to come in with some of the characteristic symptoms like fever, uh, signs of a respiratory illness, and maybe recent travel to one of these countries, um, you know, Italy, South Korea, that that has experienced outbreaks. Uh, And there's a very defined and protocolized way that we approach those sorts of cases. Um, And so there's been a tremendous amount of education of providers, nurses, staff in the hospital. Um, And, you know, I think there's, in some ways, the, the flu epidemic um, of a few years ago provided some of the groundwork and infrastructure yeah. for the way that we deal with individual cases and things like that now. So, um, you know, I think in some, with both of those things, some of the resources and some of the places that I've been going, uh, have been, in, you know, include the CDC's website. They have some great frequently asked questions. Uh, the WHO has a Mythbusters page, um, great. and, you know, different hospital systems mine, uh, in, also have some interviews with experts, infectious disease physicians, and also kind of some uh, opinion statements about sort of the local what's going on right on the ground, um, you know, based on where you live. So those would be places that I would I would point people.
0: Great. Hugely helpful. And, and we, we can put some of those in the show notes. Just like some of those websites that are actually like uh, the ones to go to rather than just uh, Googling random uh, phrases and yeah. seeing what hits. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, you know, a couple more things that just this came to my mind that I want to hit. Uh, I was talking with Steven because I think this helps neutralize it a little bit and it kind of brings it down a level um, and uh, helps. I, in my mind, when you told me this, uh, Stephen, it kind of reduced the panic. Not that I was panicking, but uh, the one thing was uh, I hear a lot about this. This. this well you can be asymptomatic and uh, have no symptoms and you're contagious. So uh, there's no way to um, even know whatsoever. And so there's, there's, a, there's a really feeling, a sense of feeling out of control. And I know you said that is true, but you mentioned something about how there seems to be evidence that there's a there's a difference a little bit uh, between the asymptomatic contagiousness and those who actually have symptoms. Um, can you speak a little bit maybe what small things you've seen there?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, As far as we can tell, and this seems to hold true for most respiratory illnesses, is that um, a lot of these... Are, you can you can transmit to other people when you're not feeling symptoms, but but the fact is, if we think about the way that they're transmitted, again, it's through it's through droplets. So if you're coughing, yeah. if you're sneezing, if you're actively symptomatic, there are just a lot more opportunities for transmission to occur, um, and there's just sort of a lot more sort of these viral particles being spread. So so yeah, you're right. I mean, asymptomatic transmission exists probably for the, this coronavirus and certainly for things like flu. Um, But even when we're building our mathematical models to try to predict the spread of these things, we almost always separate out asymptomatic transmission from symptomatic transmission. And the asymptomatic transmission is usually at a much lower rate if it exists at all. Mm. Um, Oftentimes it's entirely negligible.
0: So So you're saying that if you had the coronavirus, uh, Stephen, and you didn't have symptoms, looking at me through the Skype right now, your gaze will not infect me?
1: (laughs) That is accurate.
0: Yes. There is, there is hope. There <laughs> is hope. Thank you for that profound insight, Stephen.
1: Uh-huh. You're and, welcome.
0: And then I guess the other thing, another thing you mentioned was, I think you mentioned this, and maybe I just inferred this. Maybe I like to put pieces together because I'm just like a half full person, and that uh, kind of bites me in the behind sometimes. I'm like, oh, that guy with a gun, he's okay. It's no big deal. He's a nice guy. So, uh, but uh, I think when it comes to uh, the, the pervasive, like, infection of this, so how it's spreading kind of rapidly, uh, at least in China it did, that... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, both of you, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. That uh, I, I was hearing, like, because you know, SARS maybe spread slower because it it had initially much more dramatic um, effects, and so it's easier to spot. Whereas maybe the sense of this being so pervasive with milder conditions leads us to be immune faster, or is is this is there an upside to this broad scope of quick spreading?
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's true that there that there are a lot of undetected cases going around yeah. and people aren't even really noticing it, then it does seem like coronaviruses tend to give us some degree of immunity after we're infected by them, mm-hmm. um, and so that suggests that you know that yeah, exactly, you're exactly right that. Um, the fact that there will be fewer people susceptible to infection because they've already been infected and haven't felt symptoms, then, uh, then that might actually help the epidemic to turn over. Mm. So it's a little too early to know exactly how, to what extent sure. that'll be true, but um, but I think, yeah, you, as you said, there there's sort of these two sides to this um, this notion of the that the virus has spread far and wide. Mm.
2: And uh, one question I'd, I would be curious to hear your opinion on Stephen. You you'd use the words for the epidemic to turn over. Um, you know, what are we What are we looking at in terms of like how how do these sorts of things these events play out um, and have they played out historically? Like what is uh, you know when do we know it's over and what does over mean? <laughs>
1: Boy, that's a great question, and it's um, it's a complex one, to which there isn't really a, a solid answer. I mean, defining the beginning and end of outbreaks is really difficult. Um, we can do it a little bit more easily for SARS, the outbreak that Mark mentioned earlier, um, simply because we just haven't seen any cases of it um, since it died out in around two thousand and four, um, after causing you know a fairly severe um, range of you know infections for a little while, but but it did it did seem to die out, and it seems to be done. Um, It seems unlikely that this one will die out in quite the same way, Um, but... Epidemics in general usually have this phase where they rise, and then a phase where they peak, and then a phase where they turn over again. And that can that turnover can happen for a number of reasons. One of them is just that there's no, there there aren't enough susceptible people in the population to keep the epidemic going. Um, Another is that, uh, and and we may be seeing this in China, where their social distancing measures are really starting to work. We've seen that the epidemic has sort of turned over in many parts of China. Um, and uh, that could be in large part due to their you know, their, their prevention measures. Um, and part of it, too, has to do with just the, the fact that some of these illnesses are more transmissible at different times of year. So just the fact that, uh, that we're entering into the summer might actually help us sort of reach that inflection point and bring the epidemic down. I, I don't think it'll stop the outbreak altogether, but it might make it less severe and it might prevent all of the cases from happening at once, which makes it a much easier thing for the healthcare system in general to deal with.
0: Awesome. And, you know, now kind of getting to the end now, now finally, let's just talk about this concept of, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, like part of this thing is just like, let's look at this through the most real perspective possible. So maybe... You guys want to share a couple of things that I can share as well of like how in your life are you trying to maintain a sense of realness, right? I mean, there's this, all this hype, all this media. Um, how are you how are you staying grounded and what advice do you give to someone who is hearing to bombarded by all their friends of like basically build a bunker, uh, go underground and come out in maybe a few years and uh, this kind of apocalyptic nature? Um how are you guys how are you guys trying to remain grounded as a family and in your work?
1: So um I, I would say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think that uh, relationship is one of the greatest antidotes to fear, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, surrounding myself and and really really coming to call upon the people I love and who love me um, to sort of bring some of these fears to them, and you know, just sort of sort of sit with them with them, mm-hmm. um, has been really helpful. Um, and you know, people have been just very. Uh, uh, it just helps to sort of acknowledge that, like you know, things things can be frightening, but you know, maybe maybe this thing that you said is a little bit out of proportion, or you know, maybe it's maybe it's going to be okay. And you know what? It's I think that it's that's been hugely helpful to just sort of rely on the people who um, who are close to me, mm-hmm. um, and to just sort of talk through these things really authentically and vulnerably. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other practical things that I've been doing, it's its its difficult when I'm working on this all the time, <laughs> yeah. but I try to limit my my consumption of the news to once a day. Um, and that's that's both because it, um, you know, then then that, that allows me to, to sort of see the rise in cases and these sorts of things on my own terms when I'm prepared for it, but also because day-old news is a lot more reliable than what's just come out. Mm. Um, and so if you give sort of the news cycle a chance to run itself out, it um, you end up with a lot more reliable information that way. Mm. Um and then finally, you know, I, to, to be honest, fear was one of the things that initially led me into studying epidemics in the first place. Mm. Um, and so I think that the truth can also be a very valuable resource against fear. And I know that the truth you know, can be really hard to come by, partly because we don't really know entirely what that is at the moment. But mm. I do think that um, as long as you're doing it in a way that is sort of measured and in your control, that like learning about these things and learning about past outbreaks and just sort of learning about um, sort of what's going on um, on your own terms, can be really, really valuable. Um, and really seeking out quality, quality information.
0: Great, Mark. You have anything? Great. Yeah,
2: you know, I think um, to echo Stephen's first point um, is this idea of community, and I think a lot of times we uh, we kind of set this polar opposite between um, the idea of contagion, you know, this this mm-hmm. transmissibility, uh, and the ability to maintain some version of community. Um, even the words you know even the words social distancing measures just as we're like attentive to the language we're using um, is really kind of it's like goldmine for, for a close reading of like what does that mean and and what are all the implications that I feel when I hear those those words but what I've seen and you know and there's been some great kind of dispatches from people who are on the ground um, I, I pulled just this quote from a New Yorker article I read yesterday by Stephen Greenblatt um, who's a uh, uh, scholar at Harvard, actually, and, and he was talking about he's on sabbatical in Rome and seeing you know, a lot of people leave the tourist sites and that sort of thing. But one of the things he said uh, was that um, they they started to talk about these literary, um, you know, as as I'm sure he does in his, his close circle of friends, these literary depictions of, of the plague um, and seeing society start to collapse into to chaos and violence. But what he says is he's not seeing that in Italy. He says uh, instead he's seeing the marked presence is I'm quoting the marked presence of the warmth and kindness that make ordinary life here. So agreeable. It's as if people instinctively sense, even as their anxiety levels rise and their economy sinks, that their version of social order rests on good humor, patience, inventiveness, and flexibility. I just love that. I I love that idea.
0: That's awesome. And that kind of reminds me of, it brings me to a quote that I wanted to share as well. I think it's similar to this Mark where uh, it's so like, I think, heartwarming to hear Italy's response and, and seeing kind of in the past few days of, uh, at least locally here in Boulder, in the area, some of the responses that, as we've seen in the past week, that people are kind of responding in a much more aggressive way to protect themselves. And remind me of a great quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, and whether you're Christian or not, I think this book, this this quote has a powerful implication. And he says, uh, on, the, on the other hand, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light from your question, Christianity, I think it applies. I feel like, you know, first of all, this convicts me on a greater scale than coronavirus, by the way, um, mm-hmm. that of my the way I, I respond to abrupt uh, responses from other people and it's not a creation, but, a, a, but a, a response to a deeper issue within my own soul. But seeing the coronavirus, not that we need the coronavirus, we should have it, it's actually a terrible thing, uh, but that it's like a light being exposed on cultures, seeing how we truly respond. And this provides an opportunity for us to remain grounded. And I think what you said, Mark, is awesome, man. I think the best way we can respond bond is a greater self a greater surrender of self-gift um i think i think we just inherently were meant to give of ourselves and then the more we kind of bunker in and hide the more it, it, it makes it worse for us i mean it probably lowers our immune system i mean our we're probably going to have more stress and we're disconnected from people but to maintain that sense of okay there there's a gift here in the moment in this tragedy or this crisis or whatever you want to call it this difficulty in, a, in, in, a, in the world, in the country that uh, offers us the opportunity to look deep in our hearts and be asking ourselves why do I have the propensity to want to go and just like see the rest of the, the people around me going to buy all the toilet paper in the world and realize that I have to go do the same thing to, to preserve my own family which there's a truth to that, right? Especially if you have a family, you see everybody else trying to get a bunch of you know, canned goods and you want to get the same to keep your family sustained as well but to use this opportunity to be like, no, but at the same moment we've got to be maybe like Italy Right to respond in such a way, in some capacity, to, to maintain what's at the core of what it means to be human, in my opinion, and that is to share the gift of self. Right, and find some way. And I think that, in, in, when it comes to me and my answer to like how I remain grounded, uh, is is this idea of like, okay, first of all, I look at the facts. Like steven was saying, like, okay, overall, look, when it comes to my demographic and where I'm at, you know, I'm okay. My kids are okay. I'm, I'm I have a lot of solace in that, and that gives me the ability to helpfully care. Right, in, in, in and in a greater way for those who maybe are in that demographic who don't have quite that that love statistic, and there's a gift in there to provide for me to help those. And so initially, I was thinking like self-preservation, you know, kind of self-inflated, self, self, just self-absorbed. Like, and then uh, once I realized that my numbers weren't that high, like point two of a percent right now, or point four, uh, being forty-two years old, and they're like, what am I thinking, like? It's, and I see this among college students as well where like the college students don't even care, like, uh, oh, coronavirus, I'm 19 years old. What's going to happen? You know, I might get the sniffles and, and, and it's true. And I think there's a responsibility to do our, our, our small part, you know, wash your hands. <laughs> don't touch your, don't touch your, don't touch your mouth and your face uh, for the sake of the people who are on the margin. Right. Yes. Uh, uh, I think that's the way we need to change our, and that even that paradigm shift almost, um, <laughs> uh, it made it, um, like a noble cause, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I had to do my part to, to, help, to help those who, my mother-in-law, who's 86 years old, just to do an extra insurance <laughs> policy to make sure she's okay, right? She's going to be okay because I could, I have the resources to help her. Right. So that, that makes me grounded and gives me a new perspective. That's not self preservation, but, but in the the order of self gifts. And I encourage people who are listening to have that paradigm shift because, man, if you can get that mindset switched, uh, you will look at anything. I mean, coronavirus is just one thing. There'll be another thing. I'm not saying another virus, but some other thing in the world that's going to cause you fear and frustration. And I've learned over and over and over this paradigm shift, even though I suck at it a lot, this paradigm shift uh, is in this for a sense of joy and hope and in a concrete, real perspective. And we're going to continue this for sure. Uh, and we don't know how much we're going to continue at least once a week, but we know that since this uh, season of pandemic podcast, it's about the coronavirus and we're going to have other ones that deal with non the coronavirus and other things. But for now, we know that things change and rapidly. So we may be doing this more than once a week. We may do this three or four times a week, but much smaller level, like 20 minute check-ins, what's going on, how can we help? And uh, so look forward to this. Please subscribe to this podcast. Uh, rate it if you can iTunes and if you have a question right now we'll find other ways we just started this we decided two days two days ago to start this we already recorded it uh, so we're kind of shooting from the hip here but if you want to ask a question you can go to Twitter and just hashtag pandemic podcast and ask your question and we'll kind of look at those if you have a question uh, uh, Dr. Mark and Dr. Steven will answer it and then I'll just ran, I'll randomly ramble for two minutes to make sure I get my two cents uh, but thanks for joining us we promise to offer this regularly more often at least once a week so hopefully we will see you again either next week or even earlier. Take care. Bye-bye.